Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Hello, this is the second part of my discussion with Lawrence A. Kane on the book he co-authored with Chris Wilder, Martial Arts and Life, The Story of Us, What We Do and Why. If you haven't heard the first part, I advise that you check out the previous episode of the Jamie Club podcast. If you're already up to speed, I now continue with my chapter-by-chapter, question-by-question conversation with Lawrence A. Kane on this seminal book on the martial arts community. Have you applied your martial art outside the training hall or competition tournament ring? If you applied your martial art in real life, how many times? What we wanted to find out is a lot of people take martial arts for self-defense. And the question is, do they actually need it? Or is there a correlation to those people who are actually fit and able to defend themselves no longer actually find a need to? Hmm. And what we actually found is that the answer is a little bit of an it depends. If you're a violence professional, the number of uses is very, very high. Sure. So I'm taking like bouncers, doormen, law enforcement, things like that. If you're a normal person, the answer tends to be pretty low. And mm-hmm. so we saw a sort of a double Pareto, I guess, for lack of a better term. And what you'll find when you get the book is that those things that have numbers with them that can be charted, there's a chart that starts the chapter, and then we go into commentary and stories and things like that, examples of, of what does it mean. Those things that are sort of more free form, there's a, a tag cloud or a word cloud at the beginning that kind of summarizes the common themes. And then we get into what does it mean? And so, you know, without, again, giving the answers away, what we found is the fact that a lot of people come into martial arts thinking about self-defense, we actually find that it's there's not necessarily a, a correlation there. And in fact, that the more prepared you are and the better shape you are and so on and so forth, right? The, the less of a good victim you are and the less likely bad things happen. Plus, there's another uh, factor And we ask a question later on, we talk about whether or not you spend a night in jail, right? Martial artists study violence. We do not become violent in general because of the study. In fact, the opposite, we're not only more prepared, which makes us worse victims, but we also understand the consequences. You know, if you have good instruction, you not only know how to break people, but you know when and where and under what circumstances you're allowed to. And oftentimes you even learn how to fix them as well. I mean, especially see that Chinese arts with uh, some of the uh, traditional Chinese medicines and and uh, healing things and whatnot. Found that in, in traditional Japanese arts as well, but not quite as much. But the thing that's really fascinating about that is the outlook people have once they've spent some time with martial arts is different than going in. And oftentimes it ch- causes their goals to change as well. And another question that we ask about later on. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. What's the worst martial art mistake you ever made? Again, I really, really love this question just because I think that so much about teaching is based on errors made, both as a student and also as a teacher. So yeah. uh, I'm glad you put that one forward. And there's some fascinating uh, stories in that. Yeah. Was that based on your own personal views on teaching? Well, the reason we asked that is because it was very open to interpretation and it, it gave people the ability to talk a wide variety of subjects. I mean, everything from, you know, teaching the wrong person, which is, you know, if you're, if you're an instructor and you find a student who doesn't have the personality, the discipline or, or the emotional intelligence to use what you're teaching them, you might want to stop, yeah. um, right? Because it might be your, that's your major source of income. Sure. But can you live with yourself if somebody misses what you've taught them? So we had anything from that to, you know, people doing stuff that was either very amusing or very shocking. So very interesting answers. And, and again, you know, we, we, we speak to themes. We also highlight different stories. Yeah. Are you a night owl or an early bird? I have to say, <laughs> don't want to, well, but I certainly, my answer is that I'm, I'm naturally inclined to be a night owl, but forced to be an early bird. So, <laughs> so, so that was, uh, that, uh, were there some interesting answers there? <laughs> well, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, so there, um, first off, there's a great baseline of everyday society and martial artists are exactly the opposite of regular folks. And there are things that you become better at if you're an early bird versus if you're, you know, an night owl. Um, so that actually impacts, and we even talk about some celebrities that fall into different categories. It actually impacts way more of your life than you think. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to tell you the answer to that one. I'm going to yeah. read it. Now, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. What what attributes do you admire most? I mean, again, uh, uh, just because I find the psychology of martial arts, I I love it. That's uh, that's getting to the nitty gritty, I think, certainly in the psychology of of our culture. Yeah. And and again, very insightful. Uh, There's a tie between, there's a question about uh, what do you want to be when you grow up and that one. And so you'll find that martial artists are drawn to things differently, such as process and service that sort of everyday folks are not, right. at least not as much. There's some really interesting cross-correlation between those and some uh, really good analysis and stories that you know kind of reinforce that. You even see a little bit of that getting to you know the question about the attributes that are admired, as well as the question about what supercar you wish you have. Yes. A lot of those things kind of tie together in ways that we didn't really think would necessarily oh, okay. uh, yeah. going in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You get because what superpower do you wish you had? I, I love that one because it's, it's that connection to pop culture, which again I, I often find yeah. is, is a real common discussion point with martial artists. Um, certainly, you know, no matter what sort of background they've got, things like that sort of question is a typical one that would probably pop up in a discussion amongst martial artists. Yeah, I and mean, it's because you know, again, that's one we asked because it was easy to baseline, right? That a lot of these things are are either to support or reject a hypothesis we had going in. But we also left some questions out that we kind of wanted to ask, but we couldn't find a baseline to compare against. Right. Okay. So we want to be able to tell, is there a difference? Do martial artists think or act differently? Why? Is that good? Is it bad? What can we learn from it? And so that's one where the uh, very easy baseline is a question that's very commonly asked. Mm-hmm. Lots yeah. of surveys with it. Yeah. And I should imagine it was very diverse, the answers that you got. Yes, but there was a common theme. If you wrote a book about your life, what would the title be? It seems to be like some of these questions seem to get more and more. I mean, they're all personal questions. I get that. But but now we get what would the title of your autobiography be? You don't get more individualized than that. 
No, you don't. Um, again, common themes. And we also have our, our favorite answers are, are highlighted in there. Uh, what you'll notice, uh, what you probably notice is that there's actually a method to the madness, even though it isn't obvious, around the questions. We sort of frame, go broad, kind of get narrow, and then yeah. open back up again. There's some scientific reasons behind the order that the questions were asked, partially to make sure that we're getting really good and honest answers and partly because we're driving the thought process of people filling it out in a certain way. Right. Okay, cool. What is the best compliment you've ever received? Again, you'd imagine that would have some correlation with um, what attributes do you admire most? Yes. And it ties back to emotional intelligence. It ties back to, you know, what's your kind of your core personality values and those kind of things. And so Many of these questions kind of approach things from different angles and you'll see some commonality, although the way we analyze it and kind of the takeaways we have are quite different, but you'll notice there's some cross correlations and, and every so often we'll point those out. Sometimes we don't, but uh, more yeah. often than not, we do. Mm-hmm. What's the best single piece of advice you ever, you were ever given? Yeah. And the, an interesting follow-up on that one is, did you follow it? Which most people actually filled in on, on their own. Because a lot of times we don't know we had great advice until we didn't do it. Sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot of us have got the anecdote where <laughs> where somebody's pointed something out to us and, and we we kind of ignored it and then yeah <laughs> and then suffered the consequences indeed. Or, or you know, or it's something that seems innocuous and you just you don't really know what it means because you don't have oh. a, a frame of context. I mean, a really good example uh, at a. When I first started working, I had a uh, professor in college. This guy was amazing. He helped uh, five or six different governments, like Fiji, for example, when they got their independence. I think it was Fiji. He helped them set their government up. I mean, this guy was uh, an administration, organizational theory and design uh, professor, just amazing guy. And uh, he actually uh, started one of the world's first hedge funds. Mm-hmm. So he's also filthy, stinking rich back in, in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. And one of the things that he said, which was just like spot on, and I completely didn't understand it is, you know, we first start a new job, spend three months asking insightful questions, but don't give an opinion on anything. And it like, you know, now it's like, well, duh, of course you do that. But, you know, as a college graduate, I didn't understand. And what he was really getting to is understanding the culture, understanding why things were done. If you go in and you, and you say, well, that's a stupid idea. I think we should do it this other way without knowing why something was done that way in the first place, now you're kind of a jerk, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're not, um, the way to earn respect is to demonstrate that you're bright by asking intelligent questions and by learning how to, to succeed in the culture of the organization. And then if you want to make change, once you actually know stuff and you've built relationships with people, you can do it, right? Yeah. This is an example, not in the book, but example of advice where uh, I had no frame of reference and screwed that up on several early jobs until I finally figured out what he actually meant. And all of a sudden, it helped me to become more successful, more faster in, in, in later jobs. Mm-hmm. If, if you had to pick one age to be permanently, which age would you choose? Did you find that people answering this one, again, because he's so open to interpretation, do you find that people were answering that either because they were either thinking we're like uh, on a very physical basis, I want to be that age, or do you think that some people were picking it because they were thinking what happened to them at that age? They weren't necessarily thinking of their age, but rather the time they were that age, if you get what I mean. Yeah, people tended to put a lot of thought into it, actually. Uh, uh, and, and the answers are very surprising. One of the reasons we asked that is because there's a really good survey out and it's backed by a bunch of, of science that talks about when people are their happiest mm-hmm. and uh, what age that is and why. 
And it ties back to things like martial artists tend to be uh, risk takers. They tend to be folks who, who do more. Like you, you'll see, there's a later question we talk about, would you rather uh, go to the beach or the mountains for vacation? One of them implies, you know, beach tends to imply hanging out, sipping margaritas, enjoying yourself. There are some physical activities you can do, but it's more of a relaxing kind of a, of a vacation, whereas mountains tends to be a little bit more solo, a little less crowd and a lot more physically challenging, right? You know, you're talking about skiing, hiking, you know, things like that, right? Mountain climbing. There's actually benefits of the ocean versus the mountains uh, physically as well. So we go into a lot of that in that study. And what you find is that the things that martial artists aspire to, even on their free time, tend to be more challenging than the things that the everyday population aspires to. Mm -hmm. And so you see that in the age thing as well and how it doesn't correlate to what the sort of mainstream of society does in terms of when you're the most happy. And of course, that's one where there's an explanation that goes with it. Uh, so we're like get common themes, get representative examples and, and really come up with a set of really fascinating answers. And that was not at all what we expected going in. That, oh, in fact, it was okay. completely different than what we expected going in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, because we can see the related questions that follow that. Um, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your teenage self? And when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew Yeah, those up? actually, all three of those questions are very different. Oh, okay. And, and they they actually looked, I mean, they sound similar, but they actually are very different. They had very different conclusions because they're looking for different things. Sure. Okay. Certainly when I answered it, I looked at the age question as, okay, I'm looking at this from a physiological point of view. I remembered mm-hmm. how I was physiologically. Of course, you know... It's hard to say that because knowing what you know now and then when you were then, and also you could look at it very clinically and, and look and say, okay, where is technically your body at its peak physical fitness possible in a way? Where's the place where athletes you know, peak at? But then you could say, if you were a person who was involved in a disabling accident or something um, mm-hmm. years prior to that time, a lot of people would go, well, I wouldn't want to be that age. Why? Because I wasn't at my best physical peak at that stage. Or yep. even you could be a person who where that was the time when your fitness slumped because, you, you know, whatever, you know, whatever right. cho- choices you make. Yeah, you're but, you're um, yeah, yeah. looking at that through the lens of, of you know, the physical. Uh, yeah. Some people were looking at it from the lens of, of emotional or wisdom. Sure. Some people were looking at, you know, so you can see... Uh, a lot in there, uh, in those write-ups of what's important and imperative to folks. Yes. And, you know, again, it, it was really fascinating and, and not at all what we really expected. The advice to your, your teenage self thing is very interesting. Uh, almost, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like 75% of the people actually come in is where they thought that their teenage self would even listen. <laughs> so that, that was an interesting, you know, yeah, yeah, really interesting dynamic. Yeah. You know, when you look at those kind of things, it gets to, you know, what's important to you. And, you know, the thing about what you want to be when you grow up, again, gets to uh, what your values are. And of course, we asked, you know, whether you, you did it or not. And when you tie those things together, you find a, a really interesting insight of where martial arts tend to be not the same as everybody else. And, uh, you know, I would argue, and, and I think the, the data shows in a lot of ways better. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, any individual is going to be like that, right? I mean, we're looking at, you know, a very large sample. And obviously, there's a range around any sample, but kind of gets to values, ways of thinking, some deep-seated personality stuff and things like that, that show that there are differences between, you know, we get the whole thing like, well, martial artists are different, martial artists are special. Well, yes, actually, they are. And, And that gets some insight into why and in what ways. 
Right. And that's, well, by the way, not saying that all martial arts are perfect or anything like that. I, you know, <laughs> not. But there are things that we can do as a community that the normal kind of, you know, everyday citizen would be unable to get through. Sure. Okay. What energizes you outside of work? Well, some martial artists, you know, it's, it's their work is martial arts. And I'm sure a good number right. of people like that. So is this really looking for sort of leisure? I'm obviously, I, I appreciate these questions were subject to interpretation, but were you trying to get at that? So that actually ties back more to MBTI and the question, we, we were very careful with the wording question. So when you think about something that energizes you, right? That isn't necessarily something that you do. It's something that recharges you, right? It has a, a powerful emotional impact sure. in addition to doing whatever the thing is. Yeah. And so that was, again, one where we're trying to see, is there a difference or not? And get some good stories. Yeah. And, you know, some of those stories are, are actually, again, quite fascinating. We were very specific on the wording and the instructions that yeah. went with this thing, yes. which uh, kind of drove the way people answered it. In most cases, yes. and again, we'll go back to, there were many people, like probably most people that didn't actually read the instructions, but the part about wording things the way we did was very, very intentional. Sure. What is your favorite weekend activity? I mean, again, that's making me probably influence some of that about what energizing you, what energizes you outside of work. Actually, a little bit not. Um, it, it's interesting. And that's why they were worded uh, differently. Because we actually get different conclusions from those two questions. Okay. So uh, in some cases, it was you know very similar. And part of the reason those questions were asked next to each other was to see what that did to people's answers. There are a lot of these questions we juxtaposed for specific reasons, specific order, because it influences the people's thinking. And we're trying to get multiple angles on things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, as you say, you're getting different answers. And of course, I appreciate the fact that I remember when I was asked a question, you gave examples and you would guide it towards this is what we want to hear from you. you know? Yeah. What is your guilty pleasure? I can't help but see that <laughs> that, that being re- somewhat related. We're going from you're moving away from work. So you might find some people might go and say, well, you know what? Everything I do is connected to my work. I mean, some people really do have mm-hmm. a holistic view. Personally, yeah. I've been around a lot of people that do have a very holistic view where they don't really separate work. It's a lifestyle choice. you know. Yeah. So you've got that. And then you've got what is your weekend activity? So that's beginning to really make the point of saying separate. <laughs> you, know, you know, what is your weekend activity? And then mm-hmm. finally... Okay, what is your guilty pleasure? It almost feels like that, that one is really, let's just squeeze this from somebody. What do you like to do that is completely free of a commitment or responsibility? Exactly. Uh, yep, yeah, you got it. And, and yeah, and again, it's it, it's quite interesting what people came up with, especially because, you know, a lot, a lot of martial artists are really into physical fitness and some of those guilty pleasures are somewhat counter to that. <laughs> yeah, I, isn't it true? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we go back to, I mean, if you look at like uh, the Pumping Iron documentary, the stuff you'd hear <laughs> the bodybuilders be discussing, they're dying to do once they can go off season, you know, the things they yeah. want to eat. Well, the funny thing is a lot of the fitness world is just flat wrong. Like there isn't science behind a lot of the things that people, my, my son is a certified strength and conditioning coach. He has a degree in kinesiology and runs a fitness business. You can actually, if you do it right, eat anything you want to, mm-hmm. as long as it's in moderation, of course, yep. and still be fit. Yep. But you have to know how to do it right. Sure. And so that's why you get, you know, this, this multi it's probably over a trillion dollar uh, industry that has to do with weight loss yeah. because most programs are designed actually to make people yo-yo. 
yeah. um, and keep spending money. They don't actually solve the problem. Yeah. And, and I, I find a lot of martial artists either because they know, you know, somebody like my son, or they've done their own research or just intuitively have figured out some tricks that actually allows you to have a guilty pleasure and still be in good shape. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I've known a lot of them in terms of what people think is their guilty pleasure. First thing that comes to a lot of people's mind is food, but it's not necessarily food. It can be, oh, no, no. it can be any number of other, of other things that people feel that are not productive. It could be, I suppose. It yeah. Can be- One of them had to do with karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah. Um, yeah, obviously we covered what would you rather visit the beach or the mountains, I and mean, have you ever spent a night in jail? What three words would your friends use to describe you? Yeah, and again, I can't help but then see the relationship with that and the compliment. Do you yeah. think that a lot of people were sort of like driven to feel they need to answer humbly? Um, I don't think so. Uh, people tend to be, uh, and we had enough questions before that, yeah. you know, to, to really try to drive honest answers yeah, and. Sure. Just judging by, uh, and remember, we also let people be anonymous if they want to. And I think that a lot of what came out there, I, I think people opened up more than they maybe even intended to. Mm-hmm. And again, part of the structure, like if we'd started off with that question, we could have yeah. probably gotten different answers. But, you know, we, people get kind of invested in it when you start you know, responding to a survey like this, because it's a bit of work. You know, again, we tried not to do too much. So, I mean, there were a few people who just kind of bailed and never actually finished it. But sure. Most people went all the way through it. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the reason for the order of the questions was to try to draw people out and make them feel comfortable and responding in a legitimate way. And you'll see it when you get it. But I mean, there are people who opened out about up about stuff that uh, like one, one lady opened up about a, an incident that took her 40 years to, to publicly acknowledge, mm. uh, which had to do with why she got involved in martial arts in the first place and like had to... You know, when I talked to her about it, I was like, are you, are you sure you want me to publish this? And she said, yes, but I need to tell my son about it because he doesn't know. Right. So, I mean, that's like, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. Really, uh, yeah. really impressed with with people's emotional intelligence, um, with their, in some cases, their answers, I think, help them work through stuff. Yeah, I, I and, agree. Uh, I agree. It certainly felt yeah. therapeutic when I did it. That, that's why I felt I had to do it even when I missed the deadline. See, that's another thing that we did that was a little bit evil, but we made the deadline uh, before we actually needed it to be done because we expected that a bunch of people wouldn't finish on time. So we do appreciate your participation, um, <laughs> but we actually had designed it so that we had a little bit of time. And actually, we gave a few folks even a little extra time than we wanted to, but it took so much time to digest all the information and to parse it and do all the analysis on it that we actually were able to have a couple of folks come in really, really late and yeah. still incorporate them because of how long it took to just make sense of everything we got back. Sure, sure. I, I think we underestimated the amount of work it would take to really parse this stuff out and find meaning from it. The, the meaning was pretty obvious, but just the mechanics of like putting data into spreadsheets and databases and creating the patterns and all that sort of stuff. Cause we didn't have like, you know, fancy software. It got far more time consuming than I expected, which also had the benefit of getting folks a little bit extra time. Yeah. Excellent. What is the one thing big or small that you're truly bad at? Uh, mine's timekeeping as you may have guessed, Scott Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I'm shocked. <laughs> Part of the reason for that is, a lot of times people put, you know, the, the their instructor up on a pedestal, right? You know, if, yeah. if you can hit hard or throw good or you win trophy or whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever martial art you take, 
you see that person is almost infallible, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes even begin to see themselves that way a little bit. Usually not, mm-hmm. but occasionally. And so we want to say, all right, well, you know, we, we asked the question about what you're bad at. We also asked the question, what are you trying to make a habit of? Um, just to see kind yeah. of that, you know, again, it goes back to a little bit of emotional intelligence insight about you as a person. And a lot of folks use the martial arts as sort of their journey toward perfection, right? To become better than they were the day before, to become better than sort of the continuous improvement or Kaizen sort of concept. And that means that you have to be aware of the things that you're not good at, right? And, yeah. and sometimes that means that you shore those things up. And sometimes that means you just stop doing them. And either way, like personally, I'm tone deaf. So I could never play me. I could spend my entire lifetime trying to play music and I would never be very good at it. Yeah. I just avoid it, right? There's other things that I am not very good at that I do want to get better and I continuously improve them. And that's, you know, it gets again to that uh, a little bit more of the question about things you want to make a habit of. Right. Yeah. Sure. But a shockingly large number of martial artists are very open to an understanding of what they aren't good at mm-hmm. and where they need to improve and actually are much more likely than the population at large to try to do active things to improve themselves. Right. Who is, was the greatest athlete of all time? It's interesting that you would specify an athlete. Yeah, that was an interesting one. It was actually based off of a survey that that we saw. Part of our reason for asking the question was understanding kind of how people think. And like, I mean, there, if you, if you go back to like to the ancient world, there are athletes who were, unbelievably skilled mm-hmm. that nobody even knows who they are today. Yeah. Hardly. I mean, unless you're a historian, right? And so it wasn't just getting a question of that. It was also getting to the, are people thinking about current events or are they thinking about ancient events or, you know, holistic kind of view of the world, yeah. which is sort of a lead into the next couple of questions around yeah, uh, the, the single event that changed the world for the best or the worst. Yeah. So that was a bit of a Almost a throwaway is a leading to the other two. And it actually turned out to be more interesting. I think a lot more interesting. That, well, certainly than I expected. I, I wasn't really expecting. I was expecting that one to be kind of a fluff answer. And I'll tell you, we didn't think we we're going to publish all of the answers. We thought we'd have a few that we just threw them away. Sure. We didn't. Every question on the questionnaire ended up being a, a chapter in the book. Plus, of course, a little bit of uh, stuff around the demographics right. and the, then the highlighted martial artists. And the reason was because even for things like that, that, you know, he's the greatest athlete thing, it was actually really insightful. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably, again, you've got who is your favorite musician or band? Right. Or maybe a comparative one. Is that, was that kind of like sort of sport versus art? You, uh, uh, it, it was a bit. Yeah. And, and we also found in addition that there are things around patterns in martial arts mm-hmm. that are also reflected in music okay. that draw a common theme, which I had not considered as we, no. as we went in there. But that was a really interesting surprise. Yeah, cool. What terrifies you? Obviously, immediately when you think of that, that, again, open to interpretation, you know, you've got people who might just respond with their phobias, but then you've also yeah. got people who might be concerned about things on a more philosophical basis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And is that what- Yeah, absolutely. And that's about? when- um, uh, you know, I, some people really hurt their heads on that yeah. and you could really tell from the way they did the answers. And again, you know, open-ended for a reason, but again, there's some common themes. One of the things that martial artists tend to have in common is we're pretty good about knowing the things we can control and things we can't. Mm-hmm. And so while sort of regular folks might be terrified of certain things that are well beyond their control, martial artists kind of go, eh, well, you know, 
What can I do, right? I'm going to be more focused on, on these other things. The, the answers are quite different than the normal population or you know the general population, but pretty similar across most of the folks that responded. There's some very common themes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you regularly carry a weapon? Obviously, that's going to be determined quite a bit by the country and the laws in, involved, but I suppose. Um, Not necessarily. We, we no. made a definition of weapon that's very broad. Because like, I mean, in the UK, for example, uh, yeah. you know, a, a chef's knife is actually illegal to carry outside the house, yeah. as I understand it. Whereas in America, you know, most of us have guns. Yeah. Um, so it's a really different thing, yeah. right? So we want to be broad. Look like in Japan, for example, uh, firearm ownership is completely illegal there, right? And, and as, as it is in other countries, we cut, you know, a definition around something that is designed to be used for offensive or defensive actions as opposed to things that you could like, you know, yeah. for example, you know, I've got my coffee cup here, right? Yeah. I could throw hot coffee in your face and then bash the cup over your head. That would be considered a weapon, but not for this definition. Yeah, sure. So the interesting thing is we were actually looking for correlation between, you know, the concern about self-defense, the type of martial art you used and the need to augment. Right. And for example, we've assumed incorrectly, as it turns out, that if you had a career in law enforcement where you had to carry a weapon every day, that once you retire, you still would. Right. Not necessarily true. Didn't necessarily tie to the art that you use or to the focus of the art. So it was a very personal decision that people put a lot of thought into. Yeah. And one of the things that we actually put in that section is if you're considering carrying a weapon, here's some stuff to think about. Because that's one where the answers were somewhat varied but it was evident that people put a lot of thought into their own situation, their own personality, their ability to control their temper, yep. you know, things like that, and really made a well thought out decision. And for those who are not already martial arts, haven't already gone through that, we actually added some things to that chapter of what to think about, what to consider, how to know whether or not it's right for you to do. Yep. Because we find in certain countries, certain cultures, for example, there's there's a lot of cultures where pretty much everybody carries a knife. Sure. Well, a knife is a tool. It's also a weapon, right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember the last time I didn't carry a knife. I use them constantly, mm-hmm. but I don't really think of it as a weapon first. No. However, that's something that if it's on you and you end up in the wrong situation, you may use it without thinking about it and alter your life forever, right? So that's one of those things where we really found the answers interesting and then augmented some of the corollary stories and things like that with some advice for folks because it's such an important topic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So who influenced you the most? Um, I can imagine that that would be quite interesting, but do you think it was something that was quite surprising for martial artists or? Yeah. Yeah. There was a, actually a very surprising and very consistent theme in there. Right. Which we hadn't actually, we'd anticipated one answer and got something completely different and we're surprised. But then when we thought about it after going through the data and how people wrote it up, actually weren't surprised. Right. It's like one of those, like, now that I realized the answer is like, well, that's so totally obvious, but, but it wasn't going in. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And, and again, there's a lot of cross correlation between multiple questions, yeah. but that was one where we thought there would be a difference, say amongst genders, for example. Yes. And there actually wasn't, it was very consistent for virtually everybody that answered uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, to degrees, but it was very consistent mm-hmm. and, and in an interesting way. Right. Why did you start training? So 
it's, it's great how you sort of circle back. That's often the starter, isn't it, when it comes to uh, interviews yep. with martial artists? So, yeah, and that's part of the reason that was so near the end is, yeah. as you can see, we're kind of threading people's thought. Yeah, and, but not at uh, the end. And there's some... That, that was, that? In, but not at the end, Lawrence. That's where I think's interesting. So that oh, positioning, yeah. why, why near the end, but not necessarily at the end? That's normally a question that would open a martial arts interview, but it's also not at the very end where somebody might go, okay, now I'm going to think back at the very beginning, but why not at the very end? Yeah. So the, yeah, that was intentional. First off, that's the first question that like everybody gets asked. So yeah. we, we, just for that reason alone, we didn't want to do it first, but what we wanted to do was understand the folks as individuals and collectively and be able to see the trends and whatnot and to get the focus of their art and see if it changed over time. Right. And so we kind of let them down a path of some specifics and some generalities around the impact and the import of the training, you know, personality type, things like that. And then able to kind of pull that into how did you get started and sort of not much after that end a little bit on which is you know near the end of it is so knowing now what you know now would you do it again and then the question around do you recommend your system or style to your friends or family right. and so it's kind of taking a, a little bit of a circular path yes. but again it was trying to guide the thought process of the participants without guiding the answer Right. Yeah. Okay. And of course, that's completely uh, changed the chronology there because you've nicely linked up the actual last answers on those. Yeah. I would like to just highlight for good or ill, what was the biggest impact for your martial arts training on your life? Right. Which, by the way, was not the same as the knowing you know, what you know now, would you do it over again kind of thing? Yeah. Um, sure. It was interesting that people took a very different angle on that. Right. And that was actually one of the more profound sets of answers. I mean, there are people who got through debilitating, life-threatening illnesses, uh, injuries, life-shattering events through martial arts, or who were able to achieve things in their life they never would have without it, they, oh, they believe. Looking at that as a question, and that's often a source for so many martial arts books. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting to see, especially how honest people were around that. I mean, there, there's a lot of emotion in those answers. And and that's part of the reason we phrased it the way we did, right? Because we wanted to understand a biggest impact and not make it so, you know, the what did you grow from it or what was your worst injury or something, right? We wanted to leave it broad so that people could provide really meaningful and important to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and earlier on, you mentioned if you stopped or took a, a long break from training, why? And how have you made money from your martial arts? So it wasn't, have you made money from your martial arts? It's how have you made money from your martial arts? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And most people uh, actually did at least a little, not necessarily from teaching though. So, you know, somebody may have uh, written books or videos, somebody yeah. might have done choreography for movies or television shows or whatever. Uh, somebody might have done other things that bring in some money, uh, for example, leasing out their dojo when they're not using it. And of course, there's, you know, some folks who, who never have it all. But what we're trying to find out in, in part with that one is, is that, you know, are you doing this as a professional or sort of an amateur? Sure. And you know, because a lot of folks that, that participate are doing it for years, but they're not instructors. Right. We also found that some folks, you know, that's their full-time job. And interestingly, the sort of money incentive doesn't seem to be a big one for martial artists. In other words, if you pick, you know, the 10 reasons why you do martial arts, making money is near the bottom. No, sure. Which one of your senses are you willing to sacrifice? And I'm 
mentioning it now because again you've covered the last two questions already but it's an interesting one to finish on now did you find a lot of diversity there or did you find martial artists tend to incline to one yeah one? um so. there was a bit of diversity although martial arts did tend to focus in one area yeah the thing that was really interesting about that one is the differences between the normal population and the martial artists who participated and what we do uh, among other things in there is we talk about you know what the very senses are how they work and in some cases, you know, which ones develop before others and whatnot. Yeah. Because I think a lot of folks don't think about that when they give it, you know, kind of a, a common answer to that. But you know, think about like, for example, the, the question around what terrifies you and cross-correlating, a lot of people are terrified of being blind. And that's because most of us are strongly visual learners, but not everybody. There are people who said to be willing to give up their eyesight. Yeah, and so you know, it, it was really quite interesting how is, really. uh, how those responses, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, came out, and uh, we sort of made the assumption that the thing that people would be most likely to give up was the stuff that matters the least in terms of your ability to you know interact with the world, and for the most part, that was true. Yeah, um, well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that you should say that about because immediately when you said about sight, there is a fair number of biographical information on great martial artists and great fighters. Um, Jack Dempsey mm. is the first one that comes to mind. The argument was that they either retired from professional fighting or they changed things because they were terrified of losing their vision. And also there's a lot of mythology built up around characters in either traditional mythology or comic book mythology, right. around characters who are martial artists, who are highly skilled, yep. who are blind. Yeah, the blind swordsman and... and Daredevil. Uh, yeah. yeah, and if you saw uh, Marco Polo on Netflix, but the blind monk in there is my yeah. favorite character in that. It's a reoccurring uh, trope, isn't it, again, in martial arts? Yeah, it is. So surprisingly, there were a few people that said sight, but, you know, normally, as you'd probably expect, this one will kind of give away... Um, <laughs> no. all the details, but you know, it, it, things like smell and taste are the, are the most common ones that people would be willing to give up. So, which is what we'd expect, right? So, you know, martial artists aren't really that different in that regard than everybody else. And, and it get, kind of gets back to what the general population versus us as a community, in some cases, we're very much the same, right? Vision is the dominant sense for all humans that, that, that are actually born with vision, not everybody is obviously followed by hearing, smell, taste, touch, and, and proprioception. And so you kind of expect that you'd see the reverse of that in what you'd be willing to give up. And mostly it aligned that way. Not exactly, but mostly. Yeah. Lawrence Kane, thank you so much for your time and for co-authoring this with Chris Wilder. The book sounds brilliant. It's definitely going to be a must buy for me and certainly for most of my listeners. Where can people learn about Lawrence A. Kane? Thanks, uh, Jamie. I, I you know, appreciate your time and enjoy doing the podcast with you. I'll send you some links so you don't have to memorize this and write it down, but I'm pretty easy to find. First off, I, I'm the Lawrence Kane is the author, not the Zodiac Killer suspect. That's a different guy. So you can find me on Amazon. I got an Amazon author page. It's Lawrence A. Kane, K-N-E. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find Chris or I through Stickman Publications. And I'll, I'll send you links to those as, as well as a link to the book so people can find it easily. I actually have one of the paper copies of it. I'm still waiting to get the hardcovers. They're being a bit slow to get those to us. It turned out amazing. It is just massive. I mean, this thing is over 500 pages. It's pretty amazing. I'm pretty sure that the hardcover one would make pretty good body armor, if nothing else. <laughs> so, but uh, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing that as well. I think it's the most interesting and I certainly had the most fun, even though it's probably 
the second most effort of any of the books I've put together. And I've, I've published 22. So, you know, it, it was, uh, it was really neat. I really appreciate folks like you and, and others in the community for their participation. We obviously couldn't have done it without all your inputs. It's one of those ones like, why hasn't anybody ever done this before? It seems so obvious when, when we first started on the path to write it, we double checked to make sure it hadn't been done before because we assumed that somebody would have done it. But uh, really fascinating stuff and certainly something that I think is going to add a lot of interest to the community and you know, fo- get folks talking about it and stuff like that. So, and who knows, there was a bunch of other questions we thought about asking and, and didn't fit in. So who knows, maybe there'll be a sequel someday. But, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, the contributions that everybody made, the level of honesty and, and transparency provided is just, just outstanding. And we have, in addition to the questions that you went through, there's 40 people that we highlighted in there. And we didn't do it based on their name. I mean, there's some folks who were in the Hall of Fame who didn't get in. We did it based on totally blind. We found the most interesting answers to questions and then figured out who said them. So. It was fun. Well, it certainly is a brilliant resource, certainly for martial artists like me who are fascinated in our culture. And we're indebted to you and to Chris for writing it. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it was great, and appreciate uh, appreciate your input and and everybody's contribution. And hopefully, it'll uh, it'll get in a lot of folks' hands because I think they'll think they'll find it pretty illuminating. Great. Thank you for being on the show, Lawrence. Anytime. Appreciate it. Going back through my discussion with Lawrence, it was fascinating to see the thinking behind all the questions he and Chris chose, as well as their very order. Indeed, such psychological planning shines a new light onto the interesting selection of questions Chris posed to me when I appeared on his show. An update on this show, I'm very happy to say that I not only have a copy of Martial Arts and Life, the story of us, what we do and why, but the book is now available as the hardback Lawrence was discussing. I've only just started reading through it as I've been editing the show and the work more than lives up to the hype. Based on what had already been released in the form of the questionnaire with its interesting variety of questions and the large sample size Chris and Lawrence had used, there was very little doubt that the raw data would prove useful if nothing else. However, the authors are both proven professional writers who can present their findings in an engaging fashion, making the work very accessible. What we didn't get to mention was the wonderful cover design and imaginative interior layouts provided by the supremely talented Camilla Miller. Camilla and her self-protection luminary of her husband Rory were co-admins with Chris Hansen, Maurizio Machuca, David Jameson, me and others on Fabian Senna's Cybercoon back in the early 2000s. Anyway, I digress. It's a very important and vital work for individuals interested in the data that reveals what makes martial artists different from everyone else. Lawrence was inducted into SIG Sourcing Supernova Hall of Fame in 2018 for pioneering leadership in strategic sourcing, procurement, supplier innovation and digital transformation. He's been studying and teaching martial arts since 1970, often putting what he learned into action while working stadium security part-time. The best-selling author of 22 books, he earned a Beverly Hills Book Award and Presidential Prize, a USA Best Book Award, two National Indie Excellence Book Awards, an Independence Press Award and a Next Generation Indie Book Award, among other honours. He's been interviewed by Fox, The Jim Bohannon Show, Computer World, Forbes, Art of Procurement, Police Magazine, Negotiations Ninja Podcast and more. He can be contacted via email at lakane at ix.netcom.com
My other books, Wrong Fu and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Fu is a prequel to my Bullshit Zoo and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com the details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltail or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I'd be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there as well as filming of my various lessons so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.